0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. This morning I want us to return in our study in the book of Hebrews to the sixth chapter, and I want to read as the basis of our thoughts verses 9 through 12. After this challenging Warning in the first eight verses of the chapter, the apostle says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The German playwright and novelist Johann Geth said, correction does much, but encouragement does more. That's true, isn't it? And I think Hebrews chapter 6 is a classic example of that principle, correction does much, For he spent the first eight verses giving them a sober warning, correcting their backsliding. He's called them spiritually immature. He said, you need to grow up. You need to build the ability to process the strong meat of truth and not just the pablum of the uh, ABCs of Christian doctrine. And he's warned them about falling away from the truth and the blessings of the gospel church but after this sobering warning encouragement does more for in verses 9 through 12 actually 9 through 20 the writer now turns his tone to rich encouragement and affirmation but beloved we are persuaded better things of you his point is very clear instead of backsliding The apostle expects better things from these Hebrews. It sounds to me like a parent who challenges a child and says, I want to warn you about the dangers of bad company, but I have higher hopes for you. I expect better things from you. It's sort of a wise parental tactic in which the parent paints the picture of what is expected from the child and knows that the child then will find incentive to try to live up to that portrait. That's what the apostle, I believe, is doing by divine inspiration in this section. When he says, brethren, if you fall away, it's impossible to renew someone that apostatizes to repentance, but beloved. And notice the pastoral term beloved. I love the way that the apostle does not bang his fist on the podium and turn red in the face. The veins do not stand out on his neck when he warns God's people But he does so in a loving, parental, pastoral way. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. We're persuaded. That means I'm convinced that you will not fall away. I believe that you will instead move forward. And on what basis is he persuaded better things in their case? Verse 10 answers that question. It's because he sees in them a genuine love for one another and for the cause of Christ. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The apostle is convinced that these people love the Lord. And how does he know that they love the Lord? Because they've shown love to each other. They've ministered to the brethren. You've showed your love toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints. By the way, how do we show that we love the Lord? By loving His less than perfect people. Isn't that right? Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. The way that we serve our God is by serving one another. I've encountered people before that say, Preacher, I, I love God, but I, I can't stand His people. I don't go to church because his people have all of these faults and failures. There are hypocrites in the church, but I love God. Do you know what John says about that? John says, he that saith he loves God and he hates his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For how can he love God whom he hath not seen when he despises his brother whom he hath seen? You say, well, God is easier to love than his people because he doesn't have the idiosyncrasies all of the flaws and foibles that they do. I I understand that. The only way we can truly show our love for the Lord is by loving one another. And the apostle in Hebrews 6 is persuaded better things of these Hebrews because he sees a genuine evidence of their love for God in the fact that they have shown love for one another in the cause of Christ. May I say, dear friends, that few things are more important in the life of the church than to minister to one another, to love one another, to prioritize the cause of Christ even above personal comforts. John says it like this in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Love for the brethren is one of the strongest evidences of a gracious state taught in the Bible. Why is love for the brethren an evidence of grace? Because it's only the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul that gives a person such love for other people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9 says, As touching brotherly love, brethren, you need not that I should write unto you, for you are taught of God to love one another. This is a divine instinct. When a person is born again, the law of love is written in the heart. And there is this instinct, then, to reach out to his people. Now, I know that I'm not easy to love. The fact is, none of us are, my beloved. But if you really want to serve the Lord, you don't do it by going out and standing alone on a mountaintop and singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Do you know how you do it? By getting down at the feet of your brothers and sisters and washing their feet meeting them at the point of their needs even though it's uncomfortable to you that's how you and i show love to our lord again is by loving the brethren jesus says that brotherly love instead of saving our own neck like these hebrews who had backslidden who had said it's just not worth it the church is costing me too much personally and therefore they had fallen away instead of being concerned for their own benefits these people continued to minister to the saints. And he said, you do minister. You have, and you continue to minister. And he says, brethren, I know that that's proof that you love the Lord. Jesus taught us that such brotherly love is the badge of Christian discipleship. How do people know that you're a Christian or that I'm a Christian? Is it because we have a bumper sticker on our car that says, honk if you love Jesus? (laughs) Or that we have a little fish symbol or a cross? Or we actually wear a lapel pin that says, I am a Christian. You know, I've always been a little bit scared to advertise my Christianity in case I allowed the old nature to take control for a moment and uh, got upset with somebody, you know, in traffic or a clerk that was too slow at the store, you know. I've always been just a little bit reluctant to advertise that I'm a Christian in case I misbehaved. Because I've been known to do that before. I, I know that you haven't done any of that, but I've been known to do it. May I say the best advertisement that you're a Christian isn't a lapel pin or a bumper sticker. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. The badge of Christian discipleship is brotherly love. You may have heard before the report of the philosopher Aristides, that he gave to the Emperor Hadrian concerning the Christians. Hadrian had commissioned Aristides to give a report on what Christianity was. They were a troublesome sect in his kingdom, and he wanted a more detailed investigation. And in the course of Aristides' report, he says this about Christians. They love one another. I think that's significant. You know, today we could say they fight one another. But Aristides says they love one another, and from widows they do not turn away their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly, and he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother, for they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. This is the way the early Christians behaved. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Now, that's the way Christians in the first centuries behave themselves toward each other. Jesus says, this will be the hallmark of my church, brotherly love. And I think the writer to the Hebrews sees in their love and ministry to the saints, a token again of their love for the Savior, he says, and God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you've showed toward his name. May I say that's a comforting thought to me this morning, that God remembers your secret service. You know, others may not know what you do behind the scenes for someone in need. We have a number of folks in our church that visit the sick and infirmed and never blow the trumpet to sound forth their own praises about it. And I know that many of you have done things to help Your brethren in need in the past. And my beloved, may I say that God sees and he knows. Whether anybody else does. In fact, sometimes it's best not to blow a trumpet, right? And not to sound an alarm about how generous I've been. The Pharisees did that, Jesus said. They love to be seen of men. But he said, uh, when you do your alms, do it in secret. Now, technically, Christian charity and almsgiving are not the same thing. Christian charity is caring for our family the family of God almsgiving is charitable gifts to the poor and needy out here outside the bounds of the household of faith but nonetheless dear friends still I think we should be mindful of the fact that we do it with the proper motive only to glorify the name of Jesus Christ but here he says when you do that God remembers God is not unrighteous to forget now people sometimes forget the things we've done but God never does. God remembers. I love that verse in Malachi chapter 3 where he says in verse 16, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Now he says then they that feared the Lord. When? Well, if you read the previous portion in Malachi, you'll find that this was a day of great apostasy, great decadence, moral failure. And while the cause of God in truth was in such a state, there was a faithful remnant that feared the Lord. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Notice how frequently they communicate with each other. The church is not just an add on in their lives, but it is the core and the center. Of their entire existence. And he says, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. Did you know when we talk to each other about the things of God, my beloved, we have a heavenly audience. The Lord is listening. The Lord hearkened and heard it. When you say a word of encouragement to your brother over the telephone. When you speak a prayer at a sick sister's bedside. May I say the Lord hears. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that thought upon his name. And he says, in the day when I shall make up my jewels, I will remember them. That's exactly what he's saying in this verse in Hebrews 6.10. God is not unrighteous to forget your work. He's using the principle of negation to say God is faithful. He's righteous to remember your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward the saints, in that you've ministered to them and do minister. Now, the apostle is persuaded better things of these Hebrews because, again, he sees That they are genuine and sincere in their love for Christ and his people. What are the better things now that the apostle desires for them? He says in verse number 11, and we desire that every one of you. So what is it that he desires? Well, verse 9 says these are things that accompany salvation. That Greek word translated by the English word accompany in verse 9 means to be adjacent in terms of space, or to be contiguous or next in terms of time. That is, things that accompany salvation speak of a corollary or something that follows after your salvation. In other words, my friends, God has given every one of his people salvation when they are born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Christ did the work on the cross. The Spirit applies it in regeneration. That's salvation. You're a child of God, but Many of God's children do not have the accompanying assurance of their saved status. In pastoral ministry through the past previous 38 years or so, I have encountered a number of people who just could not seem to find peace in the idea that they belong to the Lord. They sang with the hymn writer, What if my name shall be left out of the Lamb's book of life? You know, don't you, that as primitive Baptists, we believe in the doctrine of election. That's the idea that before the world began, God chose a people in Christ and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus came to die for that people. But the fact is, I've never seen the Lamb's book of life. Have you? Somebody says, another name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life today because we had somebody baptized in our church. Another name was written, you're thousands of years too late. For the Bible tells us that those names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world began. (laughs) That book's already composed, my friends. God made that choice. We don't do anything to get our names in there. But somebody says, well, I've never seen it. Is my name there? You know, what if my name shall be left out? And we've all no doubt had that question from time to time, or many of us have wondered, "Am I a child of God?" You know Jesus saved his people, but the question is, may I find myself numbered in that happy family?" And my beloved, there have been people who have struggled with assurance in their Christian lives. Now I understand why, of course, if you have a certain mindset, somebody says, well." Uh, I'd be surprised if God didn't love me. I mean, I'm such a lovable character. If you've ever truly seen yourself, though, as you are by nature, it's a wonder. It's an amazement. It's a surprise that God would be gracious to you. He didn't say, understandable grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a good person like me. He says, it's amazing grace. It's amazing. Why is it so amazing? Because you and I are such vile sinners, unworthy sinners, right? And God would be just if he sent my soul to hell. If thou my soul didst send to hell, thy righteous law would approve it well, said Isaac Watts. But my beloved, it's one thing to be saved objectively. It's another thing subjectively to feel, to sense, to be aware of your salvation. You see, that's assurance. It's something that accompanies or that follows after, that is adjacent to or contiguous or next in line salvation it's like paul said in second 2 timothy 2 10 i endure all things for the elect's sake that is I've, i'm suffering i'm being persecuted but he said i'm glad to do it all for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation that is in christ jesus with eternal glory now there's a salvation that ends in your eternal glory that's your eternal salvation But there's a salvation with that eternal glory, a corollary to it in this world right now, my friends, a time salvation. And may I say, assurance falls into that category of something that accompanies salvation. In a word, assurance is the better thing that the apostle desires for them. He said, I see evidence of your sincerity, but I want you to feel your interest in the Savior. I desire this better thing for you, something that accompanies salvation. What he's desiring for them, he says in verse 11, is assurance. Notice how he terms it. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope firm unto the end. Then returning to the promised land imagery of chapters 3 and 4, he urges them to possess their promised inheritance in verse 12, when he says that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, You may remember the story to which this alludes. It is the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, some wanted to go back to Egypt. They were backsliders. Others were reluctant to enter into the promised land, saying, we've come far enough, and we'll just pitch our tent right here on this side, Transjordan. But my beloved, the apostle wants the Hebrews Not to be like their forefathers, slothful, but to give diligence. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance. He wants them to possess their possessions and to come into the promised land and find the peace and rest of the land that flows with milk and honey in a gospel sense. He wants them, my friends, to find assurance. So this passage expresses... The Apostle's deep concern that they might diligently pursue assurance. That word follow in verse number 12, that you be not slothful, but followers means pursuers. He wants them to diligently pursue the blessedness of assurance. If you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, keep your finger there in Hebrews 6 for the moment, Peter basically says the same thing in this passage when he says, add to your faith virtue. Now, somebody says, I believe in the Lord. That's enough for me. Faith or belief in Jesus is not enough. Now, it's certainly an evidence of your saved status. I mean, the person who believes in the Lord gives evidence of grace. But there's more be had in serving the Lord in this world than just that initial belief in the Lord. He says, add to your faith. God's given you faith. He says, you've come to understand what he has done for you. But he says, I want you to build on the platter of faith, you know, just like a seven layer cake. Some of you sisters are very good bakers and you know how to lay the layers of the cake on top of each other. Notice how he says, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. He's just building this cake. And to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, godliness, and to godliness, charity. And then he says, if these things be in you and abound, that is, if you are, say, I believe in the Lord and I'm trying to live it, I'm trying to grow in Christian maturity. He says, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind. He didn't say he's dead in trespasses and in sins, but he's blind and he cannot see afar off. He has nearsightedness. You know, a lot of people can only see what's around them. They live in the moment and they forget the big picture. One of God's evidences of wisdom in the Old Testament is uh, that we can see the big picture. Oh, that they were wise And that they would consider their latter end. You know, the wise person always thinks, where might this lead? What could happen? And the Apostle Peter says, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged. He didn't say he wasn't purged, he's just forgotten it. He's lost the meaning of it. That can happen to you or me. Notice the next verse now, 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence... Or we heard that word before from our passage this morning. Give diligence to make your calling and election what? Sure. Now, somebody says, Brother Goins, I thought you preached that God chose a people and that he wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life and nothing can change that. Sounds like it is sure. Yes, your calling and election is sure to God. But he wants us to make it sure to ourselves. He wants us, my friends, to have assurance of it in our own hearts and minds And he says, I want you to diligently pursue assurance. Why would the apostle in our passage today be so concerned that these Christians should press forward toward assurance? And the answer is because assurance is the crown jewel of kingdom blessings in this world. It's the choicest mercy to be had this side of the Lord's immediate presence in heaven. In other words, assurance is God's best for his children in this world you know we've all received good things from the lord my beloved there are better things even than the good things the best thing of all is to have a sense that he loves me that i am his and he is mine forever hallelujah that's assurance my beloved or as the hymn that we just sang a few moments ago said blessed assurance Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Do you know what assurance is? It's a little heaven this side of heaven. It's a foretaste of glory divine. Deuteronomy chapter 11 speaks of when God blesses his people, they will experience the days of heaven upon the earth. Have you ever had any of those? You say, well, I've had some of the other world's days on this earth. I know we all have, haven't we? But have you ever had any days of heaven on the earth? Days when you felt like, my friends, that if it got any better, you would have to go home to be with the Lord. I've had a few days like that in the house of God, haven't you? There have been a few meetings I've been in when the presence of the Lord was so strong and the fellowship was so sweet and the hymns that were sung were so relevant to my experience and the preaching was so powerful. A few days that I thought, just one more step and I'll be in the very presence of God on the other side. The days of heaven upon the earth. My beloved, when you have the assurance of your salvation, you, as it were, have a foretaste of glory divine. That's, as Ephesians 1.14 says, the earnest of our inheritance. The first installment, the down payment, the deposit. Now, you're not going to get the whole inheritance while you're on this side of heavenly bliss. But my friends, you can have a little earnest of it. You can have a taste of it from time to time, can't you? Have you ever had that? That's what I'm asking today. If you live with assurance in your heart, my friend, may I say you have it on an ongoing basis, the earnest, the first installment of your heavenly inheritance. It's a foretaste of glory divine. And notice in that passage in Ephesians 1, he says that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives this earnest of your eternal inheritance. It's through the ministry of the Spirit that assurance is given to you and me. Romans eight sixteen talks about that when he says, If children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He says, For the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He's describing a reciprocity here, a a conversation, a back and forth when the Holy Spirit is taking the truth of the gospel and witnessing with your spirit that has been quickened, that resides in your heart, so that the Holy Spirit is visiting or communicating with your spirit and you are blessed to be able to say, praise God, I must be one of his To rejoice in these truths like I do. The spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And if a child, then an heir. An heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I think the hymn writer knew something about that when he wrote, My father is rich in houses and lands. He holds the wealth of the world in his hands of silver and diamonds and rubies and gold. His coffers are full. He has riches untold. And I'm a child of the King. That's what assurance says. Assurance says, I'm a child of the King. Praise God, I'm a child of the King. I'm one of the King's kids. That's right. My beloved, may I say, whatever kind of father you had in a natural sense in this world, if you're a child of God and you have assurance of that, you can say, come what may, whether I live in a tent or a cottage, Why should I care for their building a palace for me over there? For I'm a child of the king. Yes, my beloved, what a glorious blessing. I say it's the crown jewel of kingdom mercies to be had in this world. Assurances like the Shulamite woman in the Song of Solomon says about her King Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am his and he is mine forever. Can you say that today? I'm His. And He's mine. One of the hymns in our hymnal picks up on this thought. And the hymn writer says this, Loved with everlasting love. Led by grace that love to know. Here's your story. Loved with an everlasting love. And then led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above. There's the Holy Spirit. Thou hast taught me It is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace from his presence all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. Listen to these words. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds in song his glory show flowers with deeper beauty shine since I know as now I know that I am his and he is mine. You see, assurance will make the whole world brighter to you. Things that once were wild alarms. Oh, I love this verse. Things that once caused me to panic. Cannot now disturb my rest. For closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast. Oh, to lie forever here. Doubt and care and self-resign. While he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. That's assurance. This is the language of blessed assurance. His forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light and gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Oh, my friends, to live with that sense To live with that existential awareness that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That is the choicest blessing to be had this side of the immediate presence of God in heaven. It's called a blessedness in Romans 4 verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the Jews only? Nay, but on the Gentiles also, he says. It's a blessedness. It is a happy state. It's a blessed and happy frame of mind. We sang about it this morning. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's assurance, my beloved. Another hymn writer says it like this, oh bliss. What does the word bliss mean? Blessedness, happiness, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh bliss of the purified, bliss of the pure, Jesus is mine. No longer in dread condemnation do I pine. In conscious salvation, that's assurance, conscious salvation, I sing of his grace who lifteth upon me the smiles of his face. May I say this morning, dear friend, nothing should be more characteristic of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ than this spirit of peace and happiness in the Lord. A miserable and hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. Jesus calls upon us to rejoice, and may I say, we should each and everyone seek diligently, we should pursue the blessedness of assurance. And somebody says, Brother Mike, just a minute, uh, isn't it presumptuous to say I'm a child of God? Isn't that a proud frame of mind to claim that? I mean, because all we can really have is a hope, because none of us have seen the Lamb's book of life. You've probably heard me use the illustration before about the uh, fact that there are magazines that I receive in the mail. But though I've never seen the mailing list on the computer database of the company that mails a magazine to make sure my name is there, I'm pretty sure that it is because they're getting mail from them, right? I've never seen their database, but yet I get a magazine from them. And the same is true. I've never seen the Lamb's Book of Life. But my friends, I get heavenly mail. Tokens of his love from time to time, don't you? I sit there on those pews and listen to the gospel preached and I rejoice in it. I feed on it. It touches me and I think, surely I must be one of his. For an unregenerate man, a dead sinner, cannot feel the way that I feel. Heavenly male, tokens of his love. It's not pride, neither presumption that speaks like this, my friends. But it's what this passage in Hebrews 6 and others in the New Testament mean when it speaks of our blessed hope. He says the full assurance of hope in verse 11. He speaks again in verse 19 which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This is the hope that is set before us. He says it's an anchor to our soul both sure and steadfast. You see my friends the objective fact of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the basis of my hope. And my assurance is rooted in that hope like an anchor which is anchored in the veil. The point that he's describing in this metaphor, in this imagery, is that it's not wrong to have blessed hope. Hope in the Bible, let me say this, is not just a flimsy wish. I think people have erred in the past, When they've spoken of the Christian hope as if it is just a a pipe dream or a wish. It's not a sprinkle of pixie dust. I hope so. Uh, Hope in the Bible is a synonym for assurance. Hope in the Bible is an expectation, an earnest expectation. We might say it like this. Hope is Christian optimism. And we're not just talking about positive thinking optimism. We're not talking about Norman Vincent Peale or Zig Ziglar optimism. We're talking about Christian optimism. That is, our hope has a solid foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see, my expectation, even though I've never seen the Lamb's Book of Life, yet I have this blessed hope, this Christian optimism. I have an optimistic outlook toward the future. Do you today? Today? Many people don't in our modern world. We're living in the age of the cynic. Nihilism, the philosophy of despair, is pervasive in our world today. Many people say nothing matters, nothing ever works out. Don't get your hopes up, it all ends in nothingness. I'm glad to tell you, dear friends that there is a better world than this one. And even while we're in this world, the Lord is on his throne. So we have hope in this life and our hope does not stop at the grave. For in this life only we have hope. If that's the case, we're of all men most miserable. Our hope in this life goes beyond the veil of death even into the next world where Jesus Christ, our forerunner has entered into heaven and he sits right now for you and me. And my beloved, I'm confident in that fact. That's my assurance today. Let me say it like this, assurance in the biblical sense of the term is a conviction of the facts of the gospel coupled with the awareness of one's personal interest in those facts, I'll say it again. If I were to write a dictionary someday, this is the definition I would give to assurance. Assurance is a conviction of the facts of the gospel Together with the awareness of my personal interest in those facts. In other words, assurance is Jesus is the savior of sinners. I'm convinced of that. And then he's my savior. I have a personal interest in what he did. That's assurance. My beloved, may I say, that's what Paul is speaking about in Galatians 2.20 when he says, he loved me and gave himself for me. I know that God has a big family. Christ redeemed a multitude out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. But my friends, the question in my mind is, did he die for me? And assurance is that blessed state that is able to say, he loved me and gave himself for me. You know, that little monosyllable, the personal pronoun, my, is probably the most important Word in the Christian gospel, the Lord is the shepherd of his people. That's true. But have you ever been able to say, the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. My beloved, that's where assurance is so vitally important. Now, interestingly, in our passage this morning, he uses this expression, the full assurance of hope. And you'll find that doctrine of full assurance not only here, but on two other occasions in the New Testament. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 22, speaks of the full assurance of faith. Colossians 2.2 speaks of the full assurance of understanding. Here in Hebrews 6.11, he speaks of the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of faith, full assurance of understanding, the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of faith is confidence toward God. It's what 1 John 3.21 is talking about when he says, If our hearts condemn us not... That is, if you're living a godly life and your conscience is not offending you, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And we know that whatsoever we ask, we receive of him before we keep his commandments. Oh, to live such an obedient life that you can be happy in Jesus. As the hymn writer says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You see, to put your faith in him, to put your confidence in him, to live with an unoffended conscience so that You will have that sense in your heart that when you pray to God, he's listening. I think that full assurance of faith is described by Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12 when he says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Is that the full assurance of faith to talk like that? Absolutely. That he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Notice the words here. Paul says, I believed and then I know the one in whom I believe. So it starts with faith in God. I've trusted him, and now I know the God that I trust. I know his attributes, his character, he's sovereign, he's all powerful, he's loving and gracious and kind and wise and good. I know whom I have believed, and then I am persuaded. (laughs) I love to visit with people who are persuaded, don't you? Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me. Paul was so persuading that Agrippa was almost persuaded. You know why Paul was persuading? Because he himself was persuaded. I am persuaded. I know whom I believed, and am persuaded that he is able. That's assurance, the full assurance of faith. He trusts God. He has confidence in God explicitly that God is able to care for him. Until the end of time against that day. Then the full assurance of understanding, Colossians 2.2, 2, is the certainty that the gospel is true and that it's true for me. The gospel that says God sent his son to save his people from their sins and Jesus paid the price. He finished the work. He satisfied divine wrath. He fulfilled the law. He rescued all that were given to him by the Father in the covenant so that none shall be lost. And that truth is mine. It's true for me. That's the full assurance of understanding. And then the full assurance of hope in our text is the conviction that heaven is real and that the future is bright for me. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I've been listening to the news. Well, that may be part of our problem. (laughs) I've been watching the news, listening to the television, and uh, the future does not look very bright. Oh, my friends, don't forget who your God is. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Remember how much he loves you. And whatever happens in this world, come what may, I'll tell you, dear friends, the sorrows of this present time will be but a blip on the radar screen. They will not be worthy to be compared with the glories that you will experience in heaven. Just one glimpse of him on yonder's distant shore will more than all the toils of life repay. The full assurance of hope unto the end. I close with Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17, when he says that assurance is something that the saints in the church of Jesus Christ, the city of God, know something about. He says, and the work of righteousness, Isaiah 32, 17, shall be peace. The work of righteousness. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Here's what it accomplished. Peace. It brought peace with God. The work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness. Here's cause and effect. The effect of righteousness shall be quietness and assurance forever. For my people shall dwell in quiet resting places in an appeasable habitation. They will have the peace and assurance in the church. When they know and understand the gospel, they will have the blessing that only Zion's children know. This kind of personal awareness, my friends, of your interest in Jesus Christ is a rare and precious jewel. Few live in this world with such a sense of peace and joy. In fact, many Christians, I am sad to say, live in the lowlands of despair and the stagnant chambers of discontent. They know nothing of the pristine heights of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Their hope is little, their faith is weak, and their step is staid and slow. It is to these people that the writer to the Hebrew says, don't be slothful. Don't return to Egypt. And don't stay in the wilderness, but press forward diligently into the inheritance that God has promised you. We desire better things for you, brethren, the full assurance of hope. That's my desire for you this morning, my beloved. Not only that you wouldn't backslide, but that you would press forward. And that you would press forward to enjoy the richest blessing to be had this side of heaven and immortal glory. May God bless you to understand and experience this blessedness. This bliss of the purified that Jesus is yours today. Blessed.